It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense, all in more or less plain English. Podcast number 868 for the 9th of February, 2024. This week, free open source software is often viewed as being second rate when compared to commercial software, but sometimes the best application actually does cost nothing. In short circuits, when something starts with Windows but you don't want it to, finding a way to make it stop can be a challenge. Auto runs fixes that. Phones no longer have dials, but we still say we're dialing a number. Hardware, software, and processes are changing so fast that some of them arrive, flourish, and disappear seemingly in days. When you're committed to using the best available software, sometimes you have to be willing to spend nothing to get it. Some of my favorite applications cost nothing, although many of the developers will accept money if you send it to them. This week we'll take a look at some of my favorites. There's Cuter, which replaces Microsoft's File Explorer. Even if you're running Windows 11 with its much improved version of File Explorer, I still suggest downloading and installing Cuter because it offers multi-pane file browsing and the ability to save complex sets of favorite locations. Microsoft's File Explorer has improved a lot in the past year or so. The new tabbed interface makes it easier to move or copy files from one directory to another. But Cuter, which stands for Quad Directory, has been around since 2006 and has been my favorite since about that same time. Cuter is free, but the developer does offer an option to make a donation. Favorites are very helpful because they provide instant access to locations that I frequently use, such as a temp directory on Drive D, digital cameras where all my photos are filed, downloads, the default download directory, and downloads-wfb, my specific download directory where I retain copies of downloaded files. I have a favorite for Google Drive, for the AppData local location and AppData roaming location, for the htdocs location where I keep websites, and for a file I just call working, which contains things that I'm working on at any given moment. You can download Cuter from the Older Geeks website, or you can download it from the developer's website, but the developer does not use secure HTTP for connections, so I'd recommend the Older Geeks website in this case. Notepad is another application that Microsoft has made major enhancements to this year, and although it has improved a lot, my preference for a text editor is UE Studio. But UE Studio is not free, not even close. Notepad++ is an excellent choice for everyone who needs a text editor. Had I not invested in UE Studio's Evergreen license many years ago, Notepad++ would doubtless be my choice today. The Evergreen license provided current version upgrades forever, and that licensing feature hasn't been an option for several years, but it is still honored. 
Writing doesn't necessarily call for using a word processor. In fact, a lot of people make better progress if they work initially in an application that's more like a typewriter. A basic text editor doesn't allow the user to create bold, italics, or underline. You can't modify the color, size, or font used for the text. You can't create bulleted lists, text in columns, or add illustrations. But when you're using a text editor, you can do just one thing. Write and edit the words. That's one of the reasons that I start most of the TechBiter Worldwide articles in a text editor. And Notepad++ offers features such as support for nearly 30 programming languages, searches using regular expressions, syntax highlighting and folding, synchronized edits, and other options that will appeal to programmers. Regardless of what you might need a text editor for, it's a very good application to consider. Notepad++ includes several plugins and a plugin manager, so users can obtain other plugins or even create their own. You can download Notepad++ from the Older Geeks website or from the developers' website. There are links to both of them on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Here's another one of my favorites. It is frustrating to see file is in use by another process when you simply want to open it or delete it. If you know what other process has locked the file, you can close it in that application or just close the application. But sometimes you won't know which application has locked a file, or the process will fail to release the lock even after you terminate it. Rebooting the computer usually clears the lock, but there are some cases in which even that won't work. Or you might have a legitimate need to delete a file even if it is open in some other process. This isn't a really common situation, but it's one of the reasons I have Lock Hunter start with a computer. When the utility is running, the user can usually delete stuck files without having to restart the computer. In cases where that's not possible, you can have Lock Hunter mark the file for deletion at boot time the next time you restart the computer. It appears as one of the options that you'll see in the context menu when you right-click a file. Select the Lock Hunter link from the context menu and you'll see which program has locked the file. The two primary options are to unlock the file or delete it, but there are also options to unlock and rename, unlock and copy, delete the next time the computer boots, or terminate the process that's locking the file. As with other utilities, it is important to use Lock Hunter with care. That means being sure the file you want to delete can be safely deleted, or the process you want to terminate can be safely terminated. Deleting Windows system files, for example, is never a good idea. So confirm that you know what the file is, what it's used for, and why you need to delete it or terminate it before doing so. You can obtain Lock Hunter from the company's website. And there's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Startup Delayer is another of my favorites. Although Auto Runs from SysInternals provides more information about all the applications that start with Windows, Startup Delayer offers the ability to delay specific startup apps. We'll look at Auto Runs in short circuits today, but here we'll concentrate on Startup Delayer. It's not an either-or situation. I think most of us should have both of them. Windows starts a lot of processes and services at boot time. Some of the applications you've installed might start additional processes that run in the tray or simply exist quietly in the background. Each of these takes a certain amount of time to start and a certain amount of memory when they're running. 
And at boot time, when Windows tries to start all the processes simultaneously, the result can be a considerable amount of contention between the various processes. If that happens, the boot process can become uncomfortably slow. Computers with more memory, faster processors, and solid-state disk drives mitigate the problem, but improvement is still possible. Some people value fast startup. I'm less concerned by that. I'm usually busy while the computer is starting, so I prefer having important apps up and running when I need them, even if it slows the startup process a bit. This is all very much a personal decision. Even if you don't care at all about startup time, Startup Delayer can manage startup applications to make the process smoother. If you're running anything but the very latest hardware and you depend on more than a few applications to start when the computer starts, take a look at Startup Delayer. You can specify which programs start and when they start. Delay times can be set to a few seconds, several minutes, or more than an hour. Download Startup Delayer from R2 Studios. There is a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Compressed files are everywhere, and although Qter and current versions of Microsoft File Explorer can treat zip files just like they're a directory, I think it's still better to have a zip utility installed, and 7-zip is simply the best. As the name implies, 7-zip has its own proprietary format, 7-z. It offers tighter compression and better security than standard zip files, but because you can't count on most people to have 7-zip, Sticking with the standard zip format is wise when you create compressed files for use by somebody else. 7-Zip can handle any compressed files, including DOCX, and yes, Microsoft Office files really are just zip archives without the zip extension. The utility can create and extract files from 7-Z, X-Z, B-Zip to G-Zip, TAR-Zip, and WIM archives, and it can also be used to extract files from ARJ, CAB, CHM, CPIO, CRAMFS, DEB, DMG, FAT. Well, I could go on for a long time with this alphabet soup, but if you have a file that's compressed, 7-Zip can probably uncompress it. Although compression ratios depend on the type of data being compressed, 7-Zip compresses to 7-Z format, which is 30 to 70% better than standard ZIP, and even if you stick with the standard zip format, 7-zip will provide slightly better compression, maybe 2% to 10% better. Then we get to copying files from one location to another using the file transfer protocol. Well, you won't find a better application for that than FileZilla. FileZilla is a free FTP application, and I have never found a more comprehensive FTP client, either free or paid. FTP clients, as the name implies, are used to transfer files. It's the application I use to upload the website, podcast, and RSS files every week. Now, not everybody needs an FTP client, but it's essential for website developers, and it might be helpful if you just need to download files from a company that places them on an FTP server. Most browsers can handle FTP connections for downloading files, but a true FTP client is a better choice if you need to download files frequently. And if you ever have to upload files, it's wise to do it using a secure encrypted protocol, SFTP or FTPS. FileZilla handles both. You'll find links on the TechBiter Worldwide website to download 7-Zip from older geeks or from the developer's website. Likewise for FileZilla. Choose either the Older Geeks website or the Developer's website. 
If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In Short Circuits, in this week's lead article, I mentioned auto runs in passing because it's a good way to find out which applications start with Windows, and it's a great help when something is running, you don't want it to, and you can't find where to stop it. Auto runs can also be used to improve security on a Windows computer. It's part of the free sysinternals suite from Microsoft. Maybe you've already used Startup Delayer, which I described earlier, to control the launch order of applications that start with Windows. That's a feature Autoruns doesn't have. But Autoruns does have some powerful capabilities and provides a more in-depth view of what starts with Windows. The interface can be a bit intimidating until you take a few moments to examine what's there. The default view is the Everything tab, and you might be shocked to see how many processes start with Windows and how they're started. Well, let's see if I can remember all of the ways that applications can be started with Windows. There are two startup folders, one for the currently logged in user and one for all users. There are two more in the local machine key of the registry, one called Run and one called Run Once. The current user registry key also has a run and a run once section. In the Windows Explorer section of the registry, there's win logon, and there are some other locations. And then the real killer, task scheduler. Any number of apps and processes can be set to run automatically when the computer starts or at any specific time. If something is starting with Windows and you don't want it to, the first task involves finding what's loading it. Fortunately, Autoruns knows where to look, and it displays clearly the application or process and how it's being launched. Starting at the top of the screen, you'll see tabs, and there's also a category dropdown that will limit the view so you're not lost in a maze of hundreds of listings. Select any item that's listed, and Autoruns will display a concise summary at the bottom of the screen. Double-click the entry, and you'll open the Properties panel. Startup entries sometimes remain for applications that have been removed from the computer. When this happens, Autoruns colors the line yellow. When an app that hasn't been verified is running, its line will be shaded pink. Now, unverified files are usually safe, and some verified files can be hazardous. So consider a pink line as simply a hint that you should take a closer look. If the publisher is an organization you trust, there's no need to be concerned. When you find something that's being loaded, but you don't want it to be loaded, clear the check mark from the left side of the line. It is also possible to delete an entry, but I think it's safer to uncheck the box first, reboot, and make sure that the app's absence isn't going to cause any problems. Then, after maybe a day or two, return to Autoruns, use the file menu to gain administrator privileges, and then delete the entry. You can download Autoruns from Microsoft or choose the full Utilities suite. 
both provided without cost. And there are links to both locations on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Windows 10 was released in mid-2015, nearly eight years ago. My memory with operating systems, software, and hardware is limited. I adapt quickly when something new comes along, comment on the new features briefly, and then forget about what's been replaced or added. Ask me what's new in version 23H2 of Windows 11, and I probably won't be able to tell you. A year ago, version 22H2 added a lot of features. You'll see them listed on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. I'm not going to read them, but they're, they're there. You can read them if you'd like to. And I can't remember a time when these weren't part of the operating system. That's how quickly the changes get ingrained in my subconscious. An IT support group on Facebook frequently posts photos of old hardware and screenshots of old software. I'm often surprised by what I remember from the old days only when somebody reminds me about it. For example, every digital photograph I make is three or four times the size of the very first hard drive I owned. And I was excited about that hard drive. It was 60% larger than IBM's standard 10 megabyte hard drive. Over the years, I eventually upgraded to a 20-megabyte drive, then a 40, an 80, two 80-megabyte drives. Eventually, there was a breathtakingly large one-gigabyte drive. How could anybody ever fill all that space? Well, now I have 11 terabytes of disk space attached, and I'm relatively certain that, except for the possibility of needing to replace a failed drive, I will never need to add more disk space to the computer unless I live a lot longer than I think I will. And floppy disks? Even the 3.5-inch disks sold in plastic boxes were called floppy disks. They didn't flop at all. The earlier 5.25-inch floppy disks weren't particularly floppy, but the predecessor to those 8-inch floppy disks, well, they were floppy. How long has it been since you've seen a computer with a floppy disk drive? Or even an optical drive? CDs, DVDs, and even Blu-ray disc players are all but obsolete for computers. There have been other changes, too. Once, we had two phone lines at the house, one for voice calls and the other for the computer. A 1,200-baud modem connected me to the office, and eventually I was able to upgrade to a 2,400-baud modem. The fastest baud rate supported is 9,600, and higher speeds were achieved with technology tricks. And yes, I had those too. High-speed internet connections are common now, with the unfortunate exception of rural areas. And the only phones in the house? Well, they're not connected to any wires. Have you seen a typewriter recently? IBM stopped making Selectric typewriters in 1991, 33 years ago. Selectric's had 75% of the U.S. market for electric typewriters used in business, but the division was spun off to Lexmark in 1991. Even the IBM personal computer division is gone, and now it's Lenovo, headquartered in China, and it's been there for years. Younger people may never have encountered a dot matrix printer and would have no idea what a daisy wheel printer was. If you're in that category, there's a picture on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Remember taking a roll of film to the drugstore or to a little box with the name Photomat on it in a shopping center parking lot? 
Founded in the 1960s, the company became a giant. It was eventually listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Photomat provided next-day processing, but drugstores then installed one-hour mini-lab systems that hurt Photomat in the 1980s. Well, then came digital photography. Now, any picture you take can be seen halfway around the globe in seconds. Fast photos used to mean Polaroid. The cameras originally created black-and-white pictures in a minute, but users had to smear a smelly fixative on them. Later, Polaroid cameras created color images that didn't need any additional work. And that's yet another technology killed by digital photography. In the 1980s, fax was like magic. When you needed to get a document somewhere hundreds or thousands of miles away, all you needed was a fax machine. Feed the papers into your machine, and a few minutes later, a copy would come out of the receiver's machine. Sometimes those copies were even readable. Today, you just send a Word document, or save it as a PDF and email it. The C-prompt persists, though. I still use the command prompt, but many computer owners have never seen it. Windows users can run a Linux command shell, and Mac users have had access to the Unix command line, but how many people know that it's there, much less even use it? Do you miss receiving America Online discs or CDs in every magazine you subscribe to? Do you still subscribe to any paper magazines? Probably not in both cases. America Online still exists, but only as AOL.com, a portal with news and weather resources. So what does all this mean? Well, perhaps the simplest takeaway is this. The more things change, the more they change. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>